Welcome to Studs. I'm Daniel Lazar. Studs explores and honors working. It also honors the life's work of the oral historian and legendary Chicago radio host, Studs Terkel. And in my effort to close the social distance, Studs gives me a chance to check in with my people and take a deep dive into what they do for a buck. Thank you so much for tuning in. I got to ask you for a big favor. If you like Studs, if you care about what we're trying to do here, please share this podcast with three people, maybe a family member, a buddy, and if you're lucky enough to have work these days, a colleague. And you're going to want to share this one. Because this episode features a conversation with Courtney Burns. Courtney is a chef, an author, an entrepreneur, and, dare I say, a spiritual guide. Indeed, some of my favorite moments in our conversation are when she discusses the spiritual, the ethereal dimensions of her work. Courtney says that food is the language that she has to talk about other things. And so it is that we talk about many things with food as our guide, our metaphor. Enjoy this dive into the working life of my favorite flavor chaser, Courtney Burns. Courtney Burns, welcome to Studs. In season one, Scott Robin humbly suggested that I try to reel you in as a guest and aware that you're in the throes of a book launch I was hesitant to even request your time, but you said yes, and I'm honored. Thank you so much for joining. So Courtney Burns, how do you describe what you do? Well, first, thanks for having me, Dan. What a pleasure to uh, be in conversation with you. If I were to describe what I do, I would say first and foremost, I'm a flavor chaser. I think that kind of is the essence of what I do. I chase flavors, but I chase them through the deep desire to understand culture, um, place, cuisine, and myself. I love the idea of you as a flavor chaser. That's <laughs> awesome. Did you get the flavor chaser tattoo? Have you thought about it? I haven't. I don't even know what that would look like. We might have to, we might have to make a design. Because which flavor would you be chasing? Oh, good point. But maybe just huge letters on your back. Oh, just, oh, (laughs) Oh, that's happening tomorrow. I'm going to book it in. (laughs) So um, while chasing flavors, you juggle several roles. Can you talk about how you balance your roles as a chef, an entrepreneur, an author, an educator? How do you juggle all these roles? Usually um, it means I'm dropping something on the ground. So I juggle, (laughs) I have to juggle with my feet as well sometimes. But it's about, you know, for me, it's really about compartmentalizing. I make a list and I figure out what is the, you know, first order of business and I go from there. Um, luckily within all of those, you know, the, the North Node is always food. Um, and so there's usually a way to, to put them together and to do two at once. And if not, it's just um, one foot in front of the other, really. Despite the fact that they're all interrelated, do you find yourself afraid that you're going to drop a plate? Absolutely. Um, I'm always in fear that I'm going to drop a plate um, because many have been dropped, but the beauty of that is they can usually be uh, put back together. The hardest part for me with juggling these different avenues within my, my field is that there's the creative side of things and then there's kind of the work and then there's this whole other administrative side of things. So for administrative side of things and creativity to live in unison, I find to be very challenging. So I have to switch brain spaces. So I really have to decide in which brain space I am because popping in and out of them uh, within a given day does not make for beautiful work. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And in particular, you have a heightened awareness that allows you to recognize what brain space you're occupying. And then this ability and willingness to toggle somehow between one brain space and another. How do you do that and how does it feel? Toggling between the two or trying to within like a given moment or even a given hour, um, I find to be almost mind bending sometimes. It's almost, it's like it's painful because I know I'm not doing my best work, but to know that I'm in one or the other, when I'm in a creative like flow state space, 
there's this ease to it. There's this, it's like everything's floating, everything's working, everything makes sense. And that's how I know that I'm really in that creative space. And that creative space can be behind a stove in the kitchen. Um, it can be writing. These take a minute to get into also. And that's why I say they're really hard to live at the same time as these other ones. Because if I have to pop out of a creative space and get into emails or administrative or like household chores or something like that, it's very, it takes me a while to get back into a creative space. It's that getting back into things that seems so hard. Yeah. So you're chasing flavors and you're chasing flavors because you love food, like capital L love food. You studied cultural anthropology and you fell in love with food. Can you talk about the path from the social sciences to becoming a chef? First and foremost, I think that food is a soft entry point to culture. They don't see that, seem that dissimilar to me. I think I was eight years old when I first was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the story goes that I said to my mom, I either want to be a, a doctor or a chef. Hmm. I would say the same thing now because I don't think that they're actually that different depending on how we frame those things. And then within, within both of those, there's this layer of understanding of culture and how you get from point A to B culture is so deeply based and rooted in food. So when I decided to go to college instead of culinary school, cause I toggled between both ideas. I think I said to myself, you know, I'll always be able to go to culinary school. Maybe I won't always get into a university. And when I got to university, first I was doing journalism. I wanted to write about the world. I wanted to go and travel. And then it turned into biological anthropology, went to cultural anthropology. And that's really where my focus stayed. And I would say that now within food, the anthropological side of food is probably the most interesting to me. How culture defines food, how immigration patterns define food. And so when I traveled, was lucky enough to go live in Nepal and India in 1999 in my junior year in college, I started to see how integral food was to culture in a different way than I'd probably experienced before. And the spices and the flavors and the, the ceremony around it. Mm. And it's really where I started to truly deeply fall in love with the art of cooking. Yes. Can I dial back for a hot Absolutely. minute just to hear you talk about this relationship between being a doctor and being <laughs> a chef? Can you draw the Venn diagram? Absolutely. I mean, we hear it more and more, I think, um, in our culture now that food is medicine. And indeed it is, depending on how it's used, um, we can get there. But if we look at, let's say, herbology, when we look at the herb gardens of you know, the 14th, 15th, and 16th centuries and earlier, they were medicine cabinets. Most of our um, allopathic medicine that we have today comes from the forest originally. Yes. And so nature holds so many of the answers to not just who we are and how we got here, but how we heal ourselves. Yes. And so there's, there's grace in just that little bit of knowing about what, what and where things came from, and then to start to use them in the kitchen, at least the way that I see it, is to nourish the body and soul and to heal. And so, you know, medicine does it in the same way. Um, sometimes it does it in different ways. How can we, to the best of our ability today, use food, use the microbiome of the soil to do as much as we can as a preventative measure and then allow our medical system to do the rest. I like that. That's really powerful. It's also really empowering. Absolutely. I mean, we can take our health into our own hands in so many ways. And there are things that are out of our control. There are things we cannot do without intervention, but how we eat and, you know, where our food comes from in some cases, not all is something that we do have control over. Were you, like me, a victim of a really toxic eating culture? 
hundred percent. We grew up in the same place <laughs> at the same time. Um, was it, it was in my, it was very much in my home. I, I suffered from eating issues. I, on some level I still do. Mm-hmm. And it was just, it was just, yeah, it was in the neighborhood for sure. Do you like me see yourself as a victim of this toxic eating culture that we grew up in and how, if at all, has that motivated your work? That's a great question. I mean, my mother was a wonderful cook. You know, she, she cooked at home all the time. With that said though, I was allowed to microwave whatever Tostino pizza I wanted after school and as many soft pretzels <laughs> as I wanted. And I could eat as many Oreos um, as I wanted. And if I wanted more sugar in my cereal, that was fine. And if I wanted Mountain Dew, it was fine. Yeah. That was just how I was raised. Um, it was the 80s. What do you want? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's just how it was. And it's not to slight, you know, the, per- the amazing parental figures in my life because I don't think they knew any better. But it's, it's a it's the way that I kind of move through the world now in that knowing that I don't want to poison other people. Right. And instead you do like the exact opposite. You, you nourish people and you inspire them with your creative and like, just like down home approaches to food. Can you kind of take me along the path? You come back from, Tibet in 99. When do you start and how do you start pivoting towards kitchens? So all through um, college, actually, I worked in restaurants, mostly in the front of the house, but I would go in on, you know, days I wasn't working or earlier than my shifts to work for free in the kitchen. Cause I did always love to cook. It was, it's part of my love language. It's how I interact with the world and it's how I show love to people. And I think that's always been part of um, who I am. So I studied cultural anthropology. I got another degree in South Asian studies with a specificity in the Tibetan language, which is super useful, <laughs> but nonetheless fascinating. Yeah. And I also did um, a lot of photography and a lot of art. I'm very tactile. I have to be making something always. So I think that's why uh, the culinary arts have kept my attention for so long. But when I first got out of college, first I moved to Australia. When I got there, my, my boyfriend and I at the time only had a certain amount of money. And so we went to far north Queensland. We were living in the Daintree in like an old broken down Bedford bus that was being eaten by the rainforest with a papaya tree in the front. And we started cooking there in this tiny little uh, town to make some extra money. And so I worked in two, di- I worked in two different restaurants and we just kind of lived there. We just lived in the rainforest for a while yeah. before we made enough money to buy a 1971 Ford Falcon with um, brown, brown racing stripes. It was a station wagon. And we had got enough money to drive across country. Yeah. You know, those were my first like paid culinary jobs. Um, and then I used those to build a quote unquote resume. I tried to get into Columbia to their MFA program. For some reason, it's the only MFA program I applied to. <laughs> they take like t- 10 students a year. So I'm not sure like what I thought was going to happen. <laughs> Needless to say, I didn't get in. And the day I found out, I packed up my mom's white beetle, which somehow I'd kind of stolen from her already. And I put my mountain bike in it, some vinyl records, whatever clothes I had. And I drove to Berkeley to cook. Now remind me, just to get the chronology right, this was in 1967? Yes, this was in 1967, exactly. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it, it could be. Um, but that was my mom in 1967 doing that. Right. Um, so much in her footsteps, you know. Marsha Burns, Marsha Burns. I love Marsha Burns. Marsha Burns moved to Mexico in a beetle with her best friend Betty in the 70s. No, 60s. In the 60s. Uh, and I love that it's Betty. Yeah, Betty. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So you're you're going you're going to the bay. So I'm going to the bay. So I'm going to cook now. I'm not going getting a master's in fine art here. So I'm going to pursue my other passion, which is cooking. And so yeah, I drove to Berkeley. I got an apartment, and I started working in, in San Francisco. First day on the job, cut my finger off. They still let me keep my job, and um, you know the rest is, is is a long story of the last two decades. <laughs> I know it was a long time ago. But can you tell me about your experiences cooking in the Bay Area? Oh, sure. What, ty- what types of restaurants were you working in? Because you built up a remarkably impressive resume. Thank you. Uh, so when I first moved there, I was working 
and I didn't have a lot of skill. I didn't have a lot of knife skills. I didn't really have a lot of culinary skills. And my kind of BS resume from Australia was only so good. So I got a job at a hotel just to get some knife skills and to get some background experience. And really it was quite hard to get a job without any experience. So I did that for a bit and did some catering and just kind of honed some cooking skills. And then I got a job working with Marsha McBride in Berkeley at a restaurant called Cafe Rouge. And it's really interesting in um, the San Francisco Bay area, how the lineages go within kitchens. So Marsha had run Zuni restaurant, which is super iconic San Francisco restaurant for many years, working with Judy Rogers, who's probably one of the foremost San Francisco um, chefs, not to mention female chefs. She's absolutely, she was amazing. Um, And so Marsha ran her kitchen for many, many years. And she also had worked at Chez Panisse for a long time. And so she took me under her wing and really taught me how to cook. She taught me uh, how to work seasonally, how to work with farmers. She taught me how to butcher my first rabbit, how to butcher my first duck. Uh, she was very influential. So I was with her for a couple of years. And then there was a restaurant called Quince that was opening. I remember saying to one of the butchers at the time, so there was a butcher shop involved in this restaurant, you know, I think it's time for me to move on. What should I do? And he said, this gentleman, Mike Tosk is opening up a new restaurant in San Francisco. You should go meet him. You know, he worked for um, Alice Waters for, you know, a couple decades and Paul Bertoli and really amazing chefs in the Bay Area. So I went there and the restaurant hadn't opened yet. And um, I staged for a couple of days, which basically means, you know, work for free and see how it goes. Stand in is actually what it translates to. And he, I was on the opening team for that restaurant. So I left Cafe Rouge and went to a restaurant in San Francisco, helped open um, Quince. And Mike single-handedly taught me more than any chef has probably ever taught me in, in my life. Taught me how to butcher whole animals, how to butcher fish. I was the, the, the market girl. So I would you know, be up at 4.30 in the morning, drive to all the markets, pick up the, the pigs, pick up the goats, pick up the ducks, whatever was on uh, order for that day, and then come back and prep it all and work dinner service. I was with Mike for a couple of years. Can you talk just briefly, if you will, about what that part of the work is like going to the market at 4.30 in the morning and picking up a piggy or two? <laughs> so yeah, I'd have to get up really early uh, to drive. At the time, we were getting a lot of our stuff in Petaluma, which is just like an hour north. So, you know, I'd wake up, drive there, see the farmer. I mean, that's kind of, it, it really is exactly how it sounds. You go there, you've ordered your pigs, they've gone to the slaughterhouse, they've been ranch slaughtered, just depending on the situation. At the time, I still had my mom's beetle. And so I just put the back seat down, you know, you'd have it all set up and you'd bring the animals across the bridge again um, in the most honoring way that you possibly could and carefully. Do you love talking to farmers? I love it. I love it. It is the soul of what we as chefs do. Everything starts with the soil. What's that relationship like between you and farmers? As chefs, we are only as good as the products that we use. And so having those deep relationships with your farmers of understanding what they're growing, why they're growing it, what they think the best uses for it are, and then how to honor it is really kind of where, um, where the magic happens. For Bar Tartine, we had a farm, it wasn't our farm. We worked in collaboration with these farmers at Full Table Farm, but we only grew for our restaurant. And that relationship was amazing because we took everything that they grew. And so no matter what they wanted to grow or whatever we wanted to try and grow, we told them we would take all of it. So that relationship was extremely dynamic it gave us the opportunity to grow things that we wouldn't normally grow. And now I spend a lot of my time um, working at Blue Hill Farm, or you know, Blue Hill Restaurant, which is affiliated with Stone Barns outside of New York City. And the farm is right there. And I'm in constant conversation with the farmers about um, what's being grown, what's ready, what needs, you know, preserving. And so that's a probably the most dynamic you know, farm relationship I've ever had because I'm standing right there looking at in the fields, touching the tomatoes, talking about them and then taking them straight into the kitchen. Ah, that's, uh, that's the dream. Mm -hmm. So let's follow that path 
a little bit more. So you're working at Keynes, you go out to the farms, you are the, I don't want to even say it, the, the market girl. It's a market forager. The market forager. Okay. Um, I thought you had said the, the, the market girl. I'm like, that sounds a little demeaning. I did. I was going to say market bitch. Cause that's really how it feels like a lot of the time. And then I, I dialed it back. So we can go with market forager. That's <laughs> probably the most PC term I can come up with. Is that sort of the way it is? Like you're you're kind you're kind of the market bitch, and you got to go out and pick At up. At the time, the- I was yeah, I was like young, and I would say yes to everything. Uh huh. And I was super eager to learn everything I could. So I was like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll do that. And all of a sudden, I was like, I'm doing it. I'm doing all these things. <laughs> I'm really tired. <laughs> right. Okay. So market bitch is taking the piggyback over the bridge. The Keynes. Right. And you, how long were you at Keynes? Two years. Reflect on it fondly? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was super challenging, but within those, you know, whenever those pressure points are there and that those pain points rather, you know, those are the places of the most growth. So I grew exponentially as a cook working in that restaurant. But you moved on. I did. Tell me. So I was going to be sent off to Italy to do a stage in Italy for a few weeks through Quince and through that restaurant. And it was all lined up. The the thing was, if I left and went to go do that, then I was going to have to stay there for another year. And in that moment in time, I felt like I could tell that I needed a change. I needed a shift. I needed to dial it back, forward, left or right in some way, shape or form. So I actually gave up the opportunity to go do that in order to take a pause for myself. That's what I did. And that's why I left. It's because I couldn't, in good conscience, go to Italy and either leave earlier than um, I would have been asked to, because that was, would have been dishonest. So it just felt like it was time to go. And did you, so, so did you take, did you take some time to yourself to breathe and recoup and um, architect something or? I took a minute. I remember doing a lot of crossword puzzles and taking a lot of walks. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then I took another job working for Amaryl, Schwarzner and Lori Regis at a restaurant called Boulette Slaughter in San Francisco, which is probably by far one of my favorite places in the whole entire world. And they, they were like my San Francisco mothers. And so also amazing chefs with pedigree of experiences behind them, just a grace and lightness to the way that they worked with food. Can I pause you for a quick for a quick question? Yes. You describe their relationship to food as like being one of like graciousness and lightness. Mm. And my impression of kitchens is always as really aggressive places. But when I've read one of your books, I have one of your books, and there is a graciousness and a lightness to the language that that you use. Mm. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about grace and lightness as it pertains to the work of a chef. That's a great question. And it is my humble opinion that cooking for me is merely the medium I've chosen to do my human work in. And so there's many professions I could be in. I believe that through working with food, Uh, Through the knowing, and it's, again, my belief, that energetics are transferred through food as we cook it. I feel like it's my responsibility to be careful about what energy I bring into the kitchen Mm. because I'm going to imbue that into whatever I cook. And then I'm going to then give that to somebody else and they're going to ingest it. And whether they're aware of it or not, there's a deep energy exchange that's happening. There's like layers and layers within that of like how I want to show up in the kitchen, how I want to be and how I want to do that work. But every day that I step into the kitchen, every day I don an apron and get behind the stove is an opportunity to be confronted with self and every step of the way, positive, negative, you know, shadows and light. It's just like really raw. It's a very visceral profession. It's very emotive. That's really, I mean, I think that there's emotion in food. I think that we, I don't know, again, if that answers your question. It does. Indeed, I adore 
your answer to the question. I just, I'm really interested in this juxtaposition between uh, grace and lightness, sharp knives and fire. Mm. They're dichotomous in a lot of ways, but only if we think that sharp knives and fire are one end of the spectrum. It's like with a sharper knife, you get a cleaner cut. So like, it just depends on, on the frame. And if we reframe it and say, no, sharp knives are actually the grace and fire is just one of the elements that we have to have in order to have, you know, earth, water, air, and spirit, then, you know, maybe they're not as harsh as they sound. The grace in a kitchen is important. You can't, you can't barrel around a kitchen. It's a tight space. There's a lot going on. It's super intense. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot that could go wrong, and there's a lot of things that could hurt you. How would you describe the ideal feel and personality of a, of a kitchen? It's a, it's a great question because there's always that moment where you're like, I am creating a culture. If you're in charge of a kitchen, you're creating the culture for all the people that you know, grace your staff and your tables. And so there's a lot of thought that has to go into that. The ideal kitchen to me is one that is based first and foremost in growth. If everyone in the room, hopefully everyone, doesn't have to be everyone, is choosing to show up knowing they could just be a little bit better today than they were yesterday and that they're going to practice that in the kitchen. Yes. We're going to practice it together. That would be my chosen undercurrent. And so if that was in place, then it would be an honoring of the work that we do and an acknowledgement of the energy, you know, fields within it. And then like a place that really breeds creativity and collaborative creativity. So I used to say to, you know, my cooks all the time, like, what do you got? What did your grandmother cook? What did you eat yesterday? Because it's like, you can't create in a vacuum, a place that is open to collaboration, that is based in love and respect and growth. And like, with the singular you know, purpose to like nourish. Yes. Yes. I love it. So Courtney, I don't, I, I wouldn't want to put you in a position to have to delineate your resume. And I don't think we should try to get off at every stop and talk about every restaurant. Um, but you definitely learned a lot about being a chef in San Francisco. You contributed quite a bit to the food scene there, but obviously, um, being a chef isn't all about restaurants. Can you just kind of give me a snapshot of some of the things that you did after you left Keynes? After, just for like a quick rundown, after I was at Boulette's Larder, I opened a couple of restaurants in San Francisco and then I decided to leave the city for a bit. And I went to Sun Valley, Idaho. I worked in restaurants and then I had my own business and I did private chefing. And then I came back to California And I worked in wineries and I did more kind of private chefing and not in restaurants at all. And I did product development. Um, And I worked at the Culinary Institute of of America in in Greystone outside of the Napa Valley. And I taught there. So it's like, there's so many avenues in food and that I think kind of speaks to that. And it's not just about being a chef in a restaurant. Can you talk to me a little bit about some of the similarities and differences of being a a personal private chef and working in a restaurant? Is it like more intimate somehow to be a personal chef? What, what is that job like? Hmm. Is it more intimate? Yes and no. I think anytime one person cooks for another person, it's extremely intimate. Um, I don't think that that's always on the forefront of people's minds when they go out to eat that's the experience that they're having, but I find it to be a deeply intimate exchange. So doing it in someone's home can seem more intimate at times, um, but it's also in some ways just, it's more, it becomes more familial and known. And there's something about cooking for the unknown um, and for people that you don't know that just has a different energy to it. Part of being a chef is being the boss, but really it's about being a coach and an educator. Can you talk a bit about the type of leader you are in a kitchen environment? Mm, It's changed so much over the years. It's interesting to look back and see the errors in my ways and how I've learned through them. 
you know, I used to tell stories that I would have some of my sous chefs, these, you know, big, strong, wonderful men would cry in my office and say that I, I had been mean, even though I never raised my voice or anything like that. And I had to really think about how I moved through the kitchen and how I expressed disappointment and shift because it was not how I wanted people to feel. And again, I would have ne- I never raised my voice or said anything. It was just, I think, this gentle look of motherly disappointment that was harder than anything else. <laughs> That's what I've come to learn. And so when I started to see that clearly, I was able to shift and stop taking mistakes personally. Food can be extremely personal. So shifting from that kind of um, the taking of everything very personal as a manager and a leader to depersonalizing it in a way where it became the lesson and in, in, in the learning and not, it wasn't about me. Um, so as that growth kind of happened, I started to see that my job was, yes, to teach people how to cook. Sure, I can, I can teach someone how to fillet fish, how to cook a piece of meat. But most of my job was helping these kids, because they were a lot younger than me, um, navigate kind of the messier parts of life. I like structure. And so, you know, there's a way things are done. There's a way, there, everything has a checkoff sheet. You know, like it's very, it's very uh, military in some ways, and kitchens are. But I want to, you know, when I manage people, I, I, come, I try and come from a place of love these days. How do I want to be interacted with? How do I, it, you know, it becomes your home. How do I want my home to be? How do I want people to feel inside my home? As part of your management role as a chef, you have to hire people and you have to fire people. Can we just talk a little bit about how you hire people? The way that it works in most kitchens, in the kitchens that we ran, people would come in, they're interested in a job or, you know, they would email and they would come in for a stage. Like I said, that means to stand in, come in and work for a day and see how the kitchen felt. You get to know, you know, their skill level and start to see how they might fit in with the rest of the team, where they fit in with the team. And then usually, you know, after that night, you have a conversation about what they're looking for. But the thing that was always most important to me was whether or not someone was a good person. Because you can teach anyone to cook. Yes, there's times where you need like one more skilled person than the other because they need to really hold up a station or... You need someone, you know, you need a sous chef who has experience. But for the people that are just coming in, it was, are you a good person? Are you kind? Do you seem passionate about what you do? Like, are you here because you want to work here? Or are you just looking for a job? Right. Um, can you just talk a little bit about how you managed to get your new hires into the program and fully engaged in you know, the spiritual nourishing project that they just signed up for? Well, usually you don't tell them right away that that's what they're signing up for. It just slowly trickles in <laughs> within yeah. venue meetings or like me buying everyone crystals. And they're like, oh my God, what did I get myself into here? Um, <laughs> it doesn't mean they have to, you yeah. know, buy, buy into it all, but they just have to be good people. Okay. But let's say, you know, for example, at Bar Tartine, like the restaurant itself really had a maker's mind. So we made everything from scratch. So to bring people in, you know, there's a lot of learning. And we were really lucky to have amazing sous chefs and amazing staff that we had for a really long time that would really assist in that process. And so slowly, you know, you, it takes time. You teach them your techniques. You teach them how we work with ingredients. You teach them who our farms are, you know, how to put things away in a walk-in. From like the basic to, you know, the esoteric, it's just a learning curve. And so it's just one day after another, you know, they start to learn different techniques. They start to learn different stations. They start to learn the flavors. And so, yeah, it's just a gradual uh, education process. You know, you have such a deep and unmitigated passion for food in and of itself. Um, And you seem to see food as part of a broader ideological and spiritual path. I'm interested in the spiritual path. You're on the path. You want to bring others on the path, not just the people that you hire, but you're definitely seeking to pave a wide path to get people on on board to mix metaphors. Can you just describe 
this path you're on? And if you will talk about how you get others to walk it with you. Mm. It's, it's interesting. Cause it's, I would say in this moment in time, I feel like the path is foggier than it has been just for myself. And luckily I'm not having to guide too many at the moment because I don't know how well I would do it. I mean, in essence, and I kind of, I've touched on it a few times that it's just like every day, I just want to be a little bit better. And I'm doing my spiritual work through, you know, the avenue of food, but to be fully transparent, it could have been in any medium, as long as it's a tactile medium that has never ending room for growth. It's not always a quest to get people to necessarily come along the same path. Hmm. It's about finding people who want to walk near you, you know, on a path towards, you know, something better. It seems to me like your newest book, uh, Nourish Me Home, endeavors to try to encapsulate some of your enthusiasm and maybe even some of your fears about all of that. And I hope you might walk me through your, your role as an author. You might have heard that Frank Zappa is known to have said that writing about music is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> It's a great, it's a great line. You seem to find a way to create language around food that allows for spiritual growth for the reader. I'm hoping you might talk a little bit about what drives you to write about food. Hmm. I would say the thing that drives me to write about food is probably it's what it's probably what I know best. And so in some ways, or maybe it's all I know, you know, like if it, maybe it's all I really know what to write about these days. Yeah. It is the language that I have to talk about other things. Mm. So it's the through line, whether it's about it or not. A lot of times, and I would say with both books, through writing, I learn about myself. Through the act of writing, I understand more about why I cook what I cook. Um, I understand more about who I am, where I came from, and what I don't know. Uh, and so it really comes back again that food is just a medium. Yeah. And it's the language that I have to talk about things. It's like food is a great unifier. Sitting so around a table with people sharing food creates a harmony or can bring harmony to a situation. There's, uh, there's an intimacy to it. And so I think that, especially in the culture now that we have and feel things feeling even more disconnected, the attempted bringing people together at a table and the nurturing aspect of feeding another person, the calming aspect of cooking food uh, and getting to know where your food comes from, all of these things together make me want to write about food to try and create some shift within our culture, some shift within even if it's one or two people and the way that they look at food or the way that they put food on the table for their families. If we can just, you know, start to move the needle a little and there'll be a ripple effect. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. I want to see and feel this ripple effect. And I, Courtney, I very much believe you and believe in you. Mm. I do believe with you that food is the great unifier. Food brings us together. It's sort of like it can be a conduit for the best of human energies. Mm. And it's a primal, it's one of our primal needs. Like we have to eat. Yeah. So why not do it as well as our situation allows? And why not also push for the bettering of other people's situations so that they have that opportunity as well? So it's like, there's one thing to write about, you know, food and the way that I write about it and this sort of mindset of food security. But then there's this other side of it where it's like, I look at the soil and look at how to change food on that level so that there is more food security as well. Like everyone should have access to healthy food. Right. It shouldn't be a luxury. Right. So there's another side to this that's like a real current in the American food scene, which I have, I mean, I'm a bit of a foreigner and 
it's been a while since I've lived there, but I find, I, I don't know, how do I put this? I have, I have very strong but mixed feelings about the fetish for food in America. Mm. On one hand, I'm so, I'm happy for people that they're engaging in these Epicurean delights and that they sit down for eight course or 15 course meals and that they're, people are trying new things. You're dining in, in, in the dark now and there's molecular and there's all of these efforts to try to get back to the land. And they're all sort of happening at once. And there's some cutthroat competition in cowboy capitalism, but there's also some cooperation and culture around food that didn't exist as much, at least when we were growing up. But there also seems to be a toxicity to that culture, as is mm. the case with you know many things American these days. And there's something divisive about it. How can your work help to reframe and reshape the dialogues about food to make it more about earth and air and water and fire and spirituality and breath and movement? Ooh, I just want to say yes to how far off track I think our food system and the restaurant industry actually is today. Oh, it's so fucked up. It's, uh, it's just, it's, and not, you know, like I just would rather eat like a bowl of broth with like a side of raw vegetables and like go sit down at a 20 course meal. I've been very lucky to eat all over the world. So maybe that's, you know, one of the reasons why, but it's just like, I'm just not interested in being someone's guinea pig a lot of the time. I just want to eat delicious things made by people who care. Right. Uh, and who are honoring the land and the earth. And so how do you move the needle on that one? By connecting to the soil, by making sure that people are connected to the soil. The thing for me is to really start to look back to understand where our food came from, why we cook what we do, why we have the seeds that we do. And start to also like decolonize food. Hmm. That's like a whole another side of, of what's going on right now with the food world. But how do we get back to this sort of honest deliciousness? It is my belief that we should be looking at food to be the most nutrient dense, the most delicious, while at the same time having the least impact, negative impact on the earth. Uh, the sooner the better, please. Right. Absolutely. I would like to ask, and perhaps this is you know a, a bit more simple. Your first book, the Bar Tartine Techniques and Recipes, enjoyed critical acclaim, won the James Beard Award. What an honor! By the way, sorry, congratulations, long overdue. <laughs> Thanks. But that was that book. Did I? Oh my gosh! I don't know if I ever told you this. I saw that book in the hands of a neighbor in my building in Berlin. No way. Yes, uh, three or four years ago. And I saw her walking down the stairs with a book in her hand. And I was beaming. I was so <laughs> proud of you. I was just like, and I tried to express to her how cool it was that she had this book. And she's like, yeah, I really, I really love the book. And I'm like, no, no, you don't, you, you don't, you don't understand. This is the best thing ever. And she's that this is happening. And she's like, no, it's a great book. I'm like, is that what I'm saying? <laughs> Did you tell her that we, we've yes, known each other forever? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, but it, so belated congratulations on that. Um, I, I own it. I I've lent it to a hundred people. I, I talk about it, mm. but quite my question about it is that it was a smashing success. It was, it was, there was a lot of joy and I don't even think there was time to really enjoy it because running a restaurant doesn't leave much time for that. Um, we weren't at the awards. We couldn't go because we were so busy Wait, and I serious? never thought it, no, we weren't there. We never thought it would win. We never thought it would win. Oh, no. So our, our editor was there and I found out, first of all, I never look at Twitter, but the, James Beard Awards always announce on Twitter. So I'm standing in the hallway while, during dinner service one night and it gets announced. It was right before dinner service because Nick happened to be in the downstairs basement office. And I walked down there screaming bloody murder. Yeah. 
when I found out. Cause I was so excited. Of course, you know, I can never, ever thought it would happen. He thought we had a shooter in the restaurant. Like that's what he thought. Oh like that's how I was screaming. And that was like our moment. It was really beautiful. And that's was kind of it. You just kind of keep going. Now I have to live up to that. Did you like book tours? I mean, it was crazy making. It's just, it's traveling and cooking is crazy. Packing suitcases full of like ingredients is nuts. And then getting somewhere, having like two days to prep, but it was great. I mean, we got to cook with so many people that we love for so many people that we love and travel. It was fantastic. We had a great time on book tour. It was really wonderful. That's awesome. It's, it's such a triumph. Um, And on my fledgling little podcast here, uh, we love. You're not allowed to call it that. No, is uh, it, no. What is it now? On my, it's magical and amazing, and you should be so proud of yourself. I will self-deprecate all day if you let me. So you can't do it on your own podcast. Okay, on my magical <laughs> and amazing yes, podcast yes. with my with my legions of listeners. Yes, all of us, all the the millions of listeners to this podcast, they love stories, and the story of Bar Tartine. Uh, and the story of the, the, the Bar Tartine book. It's a remarkable triumph. I'm hoping you might be able to tell me the story of yet another professional triumph and one professional failure. Give me the failure first so that we can hmm. conclude with triumph. Well, I can tie them in together if you'd like. Please. Um, and we can continue on the path of discussing books at the same time. Yeah. So... When I left California, I moved to the East Coast to open a restaurant. I mean, also to, I was a partner in this whole kind of boutique hotel project in North Adams, Massachusetts, and we were going to build a restaurant called Loom. The original kind of concept of Nourish Me Home was to catalog and understand where I was in time and space uh, and also kind of look to place and immigration patterns and history to inform kind of new flavors and food that I would then go to make in the restaurant. So the book was going to be kind of the home cooking version of what would coalesce into the opening of Loom. And I mean, one could call it a failure or whatever, just a shift. Um, Loom didn't open. And it didn't open, you know, for many reasons. The, the hotel's still there. We ended up changing the food program into more of an events program. And that was the right thing to happen. But with that said, then all of a sudden my little treasure chest was kind of dumped out. And I was in the middle of writing this book that had this one perspective or one kind of ending in sight. And that was no longer the case. But the book was already being written. And so... One of those, I mean, failures or I guess just disappointments. I wouldn't necessarily call it a failure. One of those kind of heart-wrenching disappointments was that Loom didn't open. Mm. But on the back end of that, there was a whole nother layer of soul searching that happened while finishing writing Nourish Me Home. So one of the successes is coming through that. And really the big takeaway of that book for me was finding what home meant within what seemed like a big failure, a big disappointment actually ended up being like a big moment of growth professionally, personally, all of it. So within one little book uh, and one kind of marking of moment in time is success and failure kind of wrapped up into one intertwined intermingled and then kind of spit out again. And so that book to me is really representative of both of those things of darkness and light of pain and beauty, you know, of growth all at the same time. And that's home, right? And that's what home is. That is what home is. And home, you know, is really, it's inside of us. Like home is within me. I can take that wherever I go. I can make home wherever I go. But for so long in my life, the restaurant was my home. Those walls defined me, that apron defined me. Yeah, And what I've come to realize is through the pain of not building that last restaurant, doesn't mean there won't be one ever again in the moment I'm not looking towards that. But through that breaking down of a dream, I realized that 
it didn't define me. It doesn't define me. Oh, I'm riddled with goosebumps, Courtney Burns. Oh, please. Well, it happened. I figured I should just be honest about it. What can I say? I'm crazy about ladies' burns. <laughs> We're always been crazy about you. So Yes, Shayna, Courtney, your mom. Did I do you know that your sister is gonna be on this podcast? Yes, like I love it. I love it. I love it too. I love I'm super excited about it. We talked about it the other day. Oh, well, I'm so grateful that you guys are willing. It's thrilling. So um, I also don't let guests leave without recommending a guest I should pursue. This could be either a specific person or just a profession you would like me to dive into. Do you have a recommendation, my friend? I do. And I was like, should I not be recommending like someone from our past? But it's just where my brain went. Go. I'm okay with that. Jeremy Techman. <laughs> like where, you know, where in the world and what is Jared doing? I mean, I know to a certain degree, but I would love, I would love to hear how his art world has shaped and changed throughout, you know, oh, he's over at, the years. He's at Great Harvest Bread Company on Arlington Heights Road. <laughs> was the bread shop was that like your first uh, food gig? It was. Yeah. Great Harvest Bread Company. And then I worked huh. all the farmer's markets. The green van. Uh-huh. I'll just listen to the dead uh-huh. and drive the green van to the farmer's markets. And the, like the <laughs> van barely had brakes. You have to stand up to break on that thing. But yeah, that was really kind of my first deep dive into working with food. Courtney Burns, it has been way too long since I've had the opportunity to hear your voice. I can't say I forgot how crazy I am about you, but it's nice to be reminded. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about your your work and your life with me. It was such a joy. Thanks for being on the podcast. And I hope to hear your voice again soon. Indeed, I do too. Thank you so much for doing what you're doing. This uh, forum is a brave and needed place. So thank you. Well, my friends, that was my effort to keep up with Chef Courtney. I did my best. She's amazing. Amazing. You simply must agree. So subscribe. It helps me if you subscribe to the show. Leave a comment, leave a review, and above all else, share studs with a couple people. Crazy times, y'all. Please take care of yourselves. Take care of your people. <laughs>